I've been enjoying the series on parables. I think this is the fourth week, and uh, even though these are stories, for the most part, that we've heard for years, decades, some of us, um, I'm, for my own part, kind of re-examining them in a new light using some of the tools I learned in school last semester, and, uh, and I've really enjoyed it. And, and last week, in particular, when we studied the parable of the prodigal son, it was sort of a re-examination for me where I feel like I learned that we've been doing that story all wrong. Um, the name shows how wrong we've been doing it. That it's 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 not a good title for the story. It's prodigal means spendthrift. Uh, if the story's even about the younger brother, his spending habits aren't the defining feature of his life. And it's really not that much about the younger brother. It's more about the compassionate father, and even more about the stubborn older brother. Uh, the the story ends with the self-righteous, angry brother standing outside, refusing to go in to celebrate, refusing to accept the Father's invitation to join the celebration. I think it's a salvation parable, and it ends sadly. And so it's, it's not a parable on how to repent when you defy your dad, and it's not a parable on how to express godly forgiveness. We, you know, we don't get to do that much. Um, it's a parable on, on how to avoid stubborn, self-righteous anger. And so with that one, I think historically, traditionally, we've kind of missed the point of that one. The Good Samaritan story we're going to talk about today, um, I don't think that's true. I think we got the story right. I think we could ask questions of the congregation, what's it about? Uh, I think for the most part, I think we would have an accurate impression of who the characters are, what they stand for, what's going on in this story. I think where we might have missed the boat a little bit with the Good Samaritan story is in our application. I think there, there's... Sometimes we, we overanalyze and try to give symbolic meaning to everything in a parable where there's really just one main point of this parable. And then the other thing we do is I think it's easy to take this parable and grab onto some false guilt. You know, why aren't all you guys out there rescuing the wounded? Uh, how, many, how many wounded people did you guys rescue this week? Uh, and if you take the parable in, in that light, I think we can start heaping false guilt on ourselves. And once again, what we have here is a parable of salvation. The, uh, this story is not, the moral of the Good Samaritan story is not how to be nicer to your neighbors. It's really a disturbing reassessment of who's qualified to, to inherit eternal life. And especially from the point of view of the hearers of the parable originally, the people who were listening to Jesus, they were alarmed and horrified to learn that people they hate are as qualified, perhaps more qualified, to inherit eternal life than they were. That's the, that's the message of the parable. So it's a salvation parable. To get it, we need to know who the Samaritans were. And you've probably heard for years, uh, if you've been in church for years, the Jews hated the Samaritans. You know, why? What, what, what did they hate them for? Um, first of all, for, for people outside of the Middle East, the Samaritans would have looked no different from the Jews. In fact, they were part of the 12 tribes, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh, were the two half-tribes they claim their descent from. Ephraim and Manasseh, perhaps you recall, are Joseph's two sons. And so these would have been descendants of Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. They worshiped Yahweh. Like the Jews, they considered themselves to be the one group that truly worshiped Yahweh in the right way, and everybody else did it wrong. Um, yet from the outside looking in, Samaritans worship Yahweh, Jews worship Yahweh. You know, for most of the people of the, even of the ancient Near East, to be what's the difference? You know, they're they're all Yahweh worshippers. Um, 
they focus their worship on Mount Gerizim, which is something that the uh, Orthodox Jews really didn't like because they focused their worship, of course, in Jerusalem. They venerated Moses so much so that they considered only the first five books of the Bible, the law, to be scripture. Uh, only the Torah is canonical for the, the, the Samaritans. And actually, theologically speaking, they would have been closer to the Sadducees of their own day um, are fairly close to the Sadducees of their own day. So why did the Jews hate them so much? When the Assyrians conquered Israel, they, they tried to sort of diffuse culturally the people they were ruling over, and they sent a bunch of, they, they, they shipped a bunch of pagans into Samaria, where they intermarried with the Samaritans. Although, it's, it's impossible to say, or I don't, I don't think it's, it's accurate to say, that the Samaritans gave up their worship of Yahweh, as often happened when people intermarried with pagans. They may have intermarried with some people, but they continued their worship of Yahweh right on through. But from the Jewish perspective, they were ceremonially impure. They were racially impure. The Jews considered them to be half-breeds who messed up the appropriate worship of Yahweh and hated them and, and felt not only this scorn for them, but felt justified, like it's right for us to hate them. Uh, and that's the problem, you know, that's the part that I think Jesus is going to address. I, I learned this this week, I didn't know before. There's a, a few of them still alive. They were down uh, under 200 uh, by the end of the 19th century, but the 1960 census said there were about 350 of them in two different cities, uh, Nablus and Jaffa. That's where they live. If you want to go meet some Samaritans, you can find a, a pocket of them there. Um, the that, those census results I had, or the last census figures I had, about 50 years old, so they may be up to four or 500 by now. So uh, there may be a few of them. But they haven't died out. I think that's pretty interesting. The Samaritans are mentioned several times in the New Testament, and they run the full range. Um, maybe you remember the story from Luke chapter 9, where there's a Samaritan village that won't receive the disciples won't receive the message, and two of the disciples asked Jesus, let's rain down some destruction on them. Let's call down some fire from heaven to burn up the cities. And Jesus says, no, no we're not going to do that. That was a Samaritan village that, uh, that they wanted to destroy. In Matthew 10, Jesus is sending out the 12, and he says, go only to Jewish villages, not to Gentile or Samaritan villages. So in, in, in Matthew 10, Jesus is saying, don't go. Elsewhere, it says a couple different places in the New Testament, first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. But in John chapter 4, Jesus has a conversation with a Samaritan woman. You know the story of the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan. And then in Luke, Jesus tells two parables, and this is the really surprising part, where the good guy in the parable are Samaritans. Remember, as we look at the parables, a couple things we ought to look for over and over again. What would the hearers have expected and how did Jesus kind of turn the ending on him? And then, who does God approve of and disapprove of in the parable? And how does that measure up with our own lives? And so there are two parables where the, the obvious good guy in the parable is a Samaritan guy. The one we're looking at today, of course, the good Samaritan. And then in Luke 17, I'm, I imagine you might remember there's a, a story where Jesus healed a bunch of lepers. And one of them came back to say thanks. And Luke goes out of his way to say, and he was a Samaritan. Um, he was the only one that said thanks and a Samaritan at that. And so a good guy in that parable is also a Samaritan. And then in Acts 1.8, 
we've had a couple different, you've heard me refer to a couple different speeches of Jesus as sort of the farewell address, but this is really it. He's about to be ascended into heaven. And the last thing he says is, you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, that's your hometown. In Judea, that's the surrounding village. And in Samaria, that's the foreign country to the north that you hate. So for us, it'd be like in Melbourne, in Florida, and even in Georgia. Um, I don't know if that really qualifies as the foreigners to the north that we hate, but I don't think Canada would either. Um, so I, I don't know. We don't, we don't really have enough hate, I think, to, to, to put ourselves in this. And then finally, in Acts chapter 8, Philip takes the gospel to Samaria, and it says in Acts 8 that the town where he preached the gospel received the message with great joy. And so they're a fertile mission field in the book of Acts when the early church is out spreading the message. So they run the full range. But when Jesus is telling this story in Luke 10, they're still the people that Jews hate. Let's take a look back at the, uh, the passage, uh, chapter 10, verse 25. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. First of all, as expert in the law, it would be Jewish uh, uh, scripture law, not like Roman civil law. This guy's in a lawyer, he's a theologian. And, I, and I, I noticed in this story what an outstanding example for counselors that Jesus sets. You know, I've, I've, t I've had a, a few uh, w with young men and sometimes with married couples, a few sort of stumbling attempts to, to be involved in their lives. Um, and I find that uh, one of the problems with preacher types doing counseling is we talk too much and don't ask enough questions. And yet Jesus asks questions. I mean, for me, I know better than this now, but my, my, my default setting would be, guy comes up and asks the question, I'm saying, looks to me like you just want to test me and justify yourself. Um, but Jesus doesn't do that. In fact, Jesus never confronts the guy. Jesus never challenges him. He just asks him questions, tells him a story, asks him other questions, and the guy reluctantly it's abhorrent to this guy the conclusion he's going to reach, reluctantly comes to the right conclusion, just really based on Jesus asking questions and telling the story. So a pretty impressive example. Um, Luke uses a, uh, uh, Luke tells this as a framework story, which doesn't mean it's less accurate. It's just it's a common literary device. Uh, maybe you recall that some of our classic literary tales are framework stories, like like Frankenstein, for example. Um, guy is stranded on a raft, floating on a raft. The guys pull him on the ship, and the guy says, hey, I got a story to tell you. And he tells the story that you've you know, kind of seen the movies. Um, and so Luke embeds the story of the Good Samaritan in this conversation, this theological discussion, a debate even, between Jesus and this expert in the law. And the story is important in its context. If you don't understand the conversation that Jesus is having with the guy, then the story doesn't really make a whole lot of sense or we're going to get the wrong application out of it. So, guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus follows up with a question. What's written in the law? How do you read it? And the guy answers well. The guy answers right. In fact, the uh, guy answers in a way that should be very familiar to the people in this congregation. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Where have you heard that before? It's on the back of your bulletins. It's the great commandment, except on the back of your bulletins, it's a different reference. In fact, this is key to the message today. 
in Matthew 22, when Jesus gave that answer, he's answering a different question. So the expert in the law's answer, you might consider it to be the right answer, but it's the right answer to a different question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what do you do to inherit eternal life? Do you see how the question itself is kind of bogus? It's a, it's, it's a relationship that qualifies us to inherit eternal life. It's not, it's not a, a list of dues. What the guys told him is, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus gave a two-for-one sale when they said, what's the greatest commandment? He said, I'll tell you two. Love the Lord your God and uh, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, these are both Old Testament quotes. Love the Lord your God, that's from Deuteronomy 6. Love your neighbor as yourself, that's from Leviticus 19. In fact, there's no rabbinical tradition of putting those two together until Jesus did it in Matthew 22. So the guy who's answering him might actually be quoting Jesus back to Jesus. Which, by the way, if you're a student, teachers like that. Um, when my students um, quote me in answer to one of my questions, it, it tells me they were paying attention yesterday. Um, and so they'll do it sometimes just to be funny or do it just to show they were listening, but uh, it shows they were listening. So this guy perhaps heard Jesus answer, what's the greatest commandment? And he thinks that's the answer to the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And notice how Jesus answers him. You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That could have ended it, right? In fact, this is a little parenthetical sermonette within the sermon. If, if you feel like you've received the Lord's clear direction, uh, just do it. Stop the conversation there and quit questioning and challenging and debating. Just, just do what he said. And there are several times in Scripture where you see a guy say, what should I do? God answers, and then he keeps answering or keeps debating, keeps challenging. The story of Balaam is just like that. Balaam says, should I go? And the Lord says, no. And then Balaam continues to talk, and it ends very badly for Balaam. I don't have time to tell that story now. But if he just walked away when he got the no, um, that might have had a different ending. Somehow, the expert in the law perceives that that's not a complete answer. Maybe he feels belittled because Jesus gave him such a textbook answer. Maybe he feels like there's something left, or maybe he just has this legalistic desire to, to narrow the boundaries. Luke says it this way, he wanted to justify himself. Justify himself what way? With his behavior or the question he just, answer, he just asked, I'm not sure. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now here's a, here's a question that I think is pretty curious, kind of bogus, because um, everybody knows what a neighbor is. And yet I think what the guy's really asking is, who is my non-neighbor? If I got to love my neighbor, where does that end? Where can I draw the line around my sphere of neighborhoodness and, and choose to not love, or better yet, choose to hate? Because there's Samaritans I hate. Uh, lots of people I hate. Um, and yet this guy's an expert in the law. Neighbors are not, the idea of love your neighbor as yourself, that's not a concept Jesus introduced. It's all over the Old Testament. Neighbors are all over the Old Testament. In fact, neighbors are key characters in the Ten Commandments. When you're not, when you're, you're not supposed to bear false witness, against whom? Against your neighbor. We're not supposed to covet stuff. Whose stuff? Your neighbors. Now, this is why I think this question is kind of an absurdity. If you go outside the neighborhood, is it okay to lie? If you find a guy who's not your neighbor, would it be okay to covet his stuff? And I think 
I think there's no support for that in the Old Testament. And the expert of the law ought to be expert enough to recognize I can't draw this legalistic line between neighbors and not and choose to love neighbors by defining them narrowly and choose to, to hate or not love others because they're not neighbors. And Jesus, of course, is going to turn the whole question on his head. So in reply, Jesus tells this story. We're up to verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Jesus doesn't dwell on the details of the crime. Um, and something I should point out here, I'm not 100% sure this is a parable. Jesus doesn't call it a parable. Luke doesn't identify it as a parable. The geographical setting is an actual place, uh, recognizable, identifiable. We can show it to you on a map and tell you what it looks like. This po possibly could have been a, uh, something that happened that, that the hearers of Jesus would have known about. For sure, I can tell you about this Jericho Road. It's the way you go from Jerusalem to, uh, to Jericho. It's about 20 miles. It's downhill. Um, Jerusalem's about 760 feet above sea level. Jericho is 820 feet, 25 feet below sea level. So it's a pretty steep road going down 20 miles. You've heard of Jericho before. In the Old Testament, in the book of Joshua, it's the first city the Jews take when they're going into the Promised Land. You know, the walls fell down. Remember that? Uh, you know some people from Jericho. Rahab the harlot was from Jericho. Uh, she let the spies in. Two New Testament guys from Jericho, blind Bartimaeus, the guy who was healed of his blindness, and Zacchaeus, the wee little man, tax collector, climbed up in a sycamore tree. That was, um, he was from Jericho. Now Jericho was also a place where, where priests lived. Uh, a lot of priests lived there, and they would travel into Jerusalem to do their priestly duties. And so this guy may have done, the, the priest, uh, let's read about him. Priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So what's a priest doing going from Jerusalem to Jericho? Maybe he lives in Jericho and is doing his priestly duty in Jerusalem, where he might have gone and served in the temple for a week, and now he's going back home after a hard week serving in the temple. Maybe anxious to get home. We tend to want to pounce this guy and be real tough on him for not showing compassion. But... Uh, I think we should be careful about that or maybe at least take the beam out of our own eye first because this guy's, you know, every reason in the world to get home. You know, he just got off the cell phone with his wife. She says, hurry home. I got, you know, dinner in the oven. Of course, that's not happening. But, uh, but he's, if he's been away for a week, he's probably anxious to get home. And, and, and what's worse is if the guy's already dead or if he dies while the priest is trying to offer some care and he touches a dead guy, He's defiled, and what's he got to do? He's got to go back to the temple to be ceremonially cleansed before he can go home. So we're talking about not a few minutes out of his journey home, but maybe days out of his journey home. And so it's, we can't excuse his behavior, but it's, the guy's not quite as, well, let me put it this way. In every circumstance, you can find reasons to not show mercy or reasons to be too busy to show compassion, just like this guy did. Verse 32, so to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Levite's like a junior priest, like a priest assistant. They, they, he might have been doing the same kind of, kind of work in Jerusalem. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
This messes with expectations a couple different ways. 21st century liberals would say, would tell the story this way. If the wounded guy was a Samaritan, you ought to be able to cross those ethnic boundaries and, and racial boundaries even to show compassion to him. But Jesus turns that on his head. The, the guy who shows compassion isn't, he's cross, crossing ethnic boundaries, but it's the other way around. It's the despised guy who's showing mercy. If the wounded Jewish guy had been conscious, he probably would have scornfully refused help from a Samaritan. Uh, which makes it even more surprising that this guy does the, uh, uh, does the merciful act. Here's what the audience probably expected. Two clergymen, a priest and a Levite, come along and ignore the guy. Here's a story they would have liked. A layman comes along, just a regular guy, carpenter or whatever, and he shows compassion. If he'd been a Jewish guy who wasn't a priest, they'd have loved that story because there was this tension between the clergy. Uh, because remember the... Uh, the Jewish clergy had political power as well as religious authority. And so, as there are in any kind of institutional organization, there would have been this tension between um, the, the laymen who felt at times like they were oppressed by the clergy. And so, if a Jewish layman comes out as the hero of the story, that would have been, a, they would have loved that story. Uh, oil and wine used as ointment. Uh, that was commonly done you know, 2,000 years ago. That's not... You might seem surprised to see him using oil and wine to, to bathe the guy's wounds. But, of course, he wouldn't have been carrying a first aid kit, and those would have been the kind of things you use what you have. Verse 34, then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The two coins were denarii. A denarius is a... a one day's pay for a laborer. So he, he gave the innkeeper two days' pay um, and then offers to be responsible for whatever bill he's got left at the end. So he doesn't ask the innkeeper to carry on. You know, now I've passed him on to you. It's your job to be generous to him. He agrees to keep accepting responsibility for this guy. So extraordinarily generous. It's not just a stranger, but a stranger who hates me. And it's not just taking out time, but it's taking out time and and and. It, and, and enduring expense and accepting responsibility for ongoing expense that the Samaritan gives. So Jesus finishes the story by, by asking the same question or the question back to the expert in the law. Verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? I think this part's funny because the guy can't say Samaritan. His answer, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Uh, it seems like a I picture just choking in his throat, the, the one who had mercy on him, because he doesn't want to admit that the Samaritan's the good guy, right? So Jesus says, go and do likewise. So you do what he did. Show the love to your neighbor like he did, and you'll be loving your neighbor as yourself, and you'll inherit eternal life is the answer of Jesus. To, and just, just picture, if you're an expert in the law on this day, what an obnoxious answer this is if you think it through. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do like the Samaritan. And that's what Jesus tells him. How do you see other people? This wounded guy was seen by the robbers as a victim, somebody to exploit. The, uh, the priest and the Levite saw him as, as a nuisance to avoid. You know, this, this guy's going to slow me down. And yet the Samaritan saw him as a neighbor to love. I didn't see, uh, 
I didn't put this on my list, but I thought of something else. Uh, um, sometimes we see other people as opportunities to seize. Um, a lot of my family, um, an extended family, have been in sales for years. And I, don't, I know somebody's got to do it, and I don't want to rag on you if that's your career. But uh, you ever been at a party, somebody's sitting up next to you talking to you, and they're asking questions about you, and it's like, oh, so uh, both your kids are grown now. Well, this is a prime time to invest in, uh, uh, in something else. Have you considered this? And I realize, oh, they don't really care about me and my kids and my family. They're trying to sell me something. Uh, most of you have, seen, have endured that. And uh, it's one of the reasons, although my family was in it, and I, we had opportunities to do it at times, I just never wanted to go there. I never wanted my friends and acquaintances to be, to be uh, um, opportunities for me to seize. And yet sometimes in the church setting, I think people feel that way about the way we evangelize. Like we're so anxious to close the deal and get another notch on our Bible or something that uh, we don't really care about their needs or care about them as people. We just want to you know, chalk one up for the kingdom or something like that. Um, yet this, this Samaritan showed true compassion, showed true love for the guy. The key question is not who is my neighbor so I can define who gets love from me and who doesn't get love from me. The question is this. Whose neighbor am I? And we, wherever you live, you can't. Need, none of us are omnipotent. None of us are omnipresent. Yet we're always somewhere. And wherever we are, you can trust God to bring people in your path who need help. And what do we do with those people? That's the question. Are we neighbors to them? Let's talk about a couple of incorrect applications from this story. The meaning is easy. But how to apply it to our lives, that's a little more challenging. Two things I see happening often with this story, kind of, I think, wrong turns. Um, one is a allegorization, which is kind of a made-up word, but I didn't make it up. I read it somewhere else. And the other one's false guilt. Uh, allegorization is when you take something that's not an allegory and make it an allegory. Um, and an allegory is something where everything has meaning, like Pilgrim's Progress. Everything stands for something else. Um, in this story, everything doesn't stand for something. It has one main point. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Or you know, what's, what's a neighbor? I'm, I'm on a little bit on shaky ground here because I'm going to tangle with one of the foremost theologians in history. But uh, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo who wrote Meditations and City of God, he allegorized this parable and gave meaning to everything in the parable. And I feel a little puny standing up against him, but I think, I think he got it wrong. Um, but here's what he said. It's just kind of interesting to look at. He said, the victim represents Adam. The thieves represent Satan and his demons. The priest and the Levite represent the Old Testament. The Samaritan is Jesus, you know, because he sacrificially gave. And, you know, I could see, you can see where some of it comes from. The inn represents the church, and the innkeeper represents Paul, according to Augustine. Now, here's where, here's where I'll tell you just... just this part's in, these, are, these things are interesting to me. It won't be that much help to apply it to our own lives. But here's where I think it's wrong. When Jesus was telling this parable, he expected it to have meaning to the people who were listening to it. And people who were listening to it, if, the, if, the, if this had been true and it had been explained to them, they would have said, what's this church? What's that mean? Who's Paul? You know, those, those would have had no meaning to to the listeners of Jesus. So it's interesting sometimes to allegorize them, but it, with the parables, this is one of the things I warned about about a month ago. 
we ought to look for the intent of Jesus' words and how he expected his hearers to receive them. Now, something else we can look for, Luke wrote this in a store, in, in a, his biography of Jesus, and so Luke might quite possibly have used this story to encourage the church. He had an audience probably of churches that he and Paul helped plant, and he might have expected them to receive a, a whole other layer of meaning from this. But when Jesus was talking to the expert in the law, nobody in his story represented Paul. The other possible misapplication is false guilt. Can you see how this would be turned into sort of a finger-wagging message on, you know, how many people did you rescue this week? You know, what have you guys been doing? Watching a lot of TV, right? You're not out there helping people, bandaging their wounds and spending your money. You're just looking after yourselves. Um, and so you can turn that into sort of this false guilt thing where the Samaritan who helped the guy, he wasn't an EMT. He wasn't in the business of rescuing people. And he didn't go out and start a new ministry. Actually, I think the guy who should have started the new ministry was the wounded guy who got served. Now he's going to start a ministry called Victim Rescuers because uh, you know, we comfort others with the comfort we've received. And I've seen that happen, actually, in the, in the modern Christian context. People get delivered and then want to go out and help other people get delivered. And that seems appropriate to me, but that's not the message here. There's an infinite number of people who need help. And where do you start? Or if you start, where do you stop? Or when do you eat? Uh, or sleep? Or how do you live your life? And so the, the false guilt that we could take, because there's so many problems in the world that are beyond my ability and energy level and, and, and financial ability to solve, would just be overwhelming. It just makes me want to lay down. Because uh, it's just impossible to do any good to anybody if, we, if we're just paralyzed by that. Well, this part, I didn't get it from a commentary. I didn't read it from theologians. This is my own personal opinion on how this works. But I've, I've been, you know, I've, I've felt false guilt, I think, from reading this parable. And, and here's how I deal with it. And here's how I might suggest to you as a way to handle it. Live your life. Do what God's called you to do. And I believe you can trust that God will bring across your path people who he's called you to deal with. Now, the flip side of that is if he brings them across your path, I think you've met some new neighbors. And, uh, and you'll have the question is not going to be, is that your neighbor or not? But are you going to be a neighbor to them? I, I use the phrase cross as my desk, but I don't really mean desk. Path would be more like it. Um, but, uh, you know, when, when situations come to my attention, then I think I have a responsibility for them. Now, you don't take, don't take this too far. Hurting people won't come to your attention if, if you never leave the house, if, if, if all you do is entertain yourself, then, then you won't have any opportunity. You gotta, you gotta live a life to have people cross in your path. And so in 21st century United States, we do a lot of cocooning where we don't have to worry about the rest of the world. And that's, you gotta get out there uh, to have a chance to see them cross your path. Uh, uh, just a real simple example. I was going to the hospital yesterday to visit my mom in the foyer I ran into a person I know who asked me to help with the situation and, and their family. And what do I believe about this? Um, I, I don't really believe in accidents. I believe God orders our steps and that kind of thing. And uh, a simple little thing, but it's real easy for me to see that God had us intersect. And I, I just believe that happened. 
And so what's my, what's my responsibility? Well, yeah, this one crossed my path. It's a, it's a situation I feel like I can help with. It's people I know. I already knew they were my neighbors, but, uh, but I sure know it now. And, and so uh, I believe that we can trust God to do that for us. When should you be a neighbor? And this is the part where I want to help you avoid feeling some false guilt. When did the priest encounter the wounded guy? It says in this Bible, he, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When did the Samaritan encounter him? The Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. So as you're traveling, you'll run across wounded people. And, and are you going to be a neighbor to them? That's the question. Mordecai said to Esther, who's to say but that God didn't put you here for such a time as this you know, to, look, to deliver his people? And so I like to use that phrase a lot of times. When there's this awkward situation, who's to say but that God didn't put me here now to deal with this because it's something he wants me to deal with. But let's go back to the question I asked a while back. The great commandment says, love God, love your neighbor. The question this expert in the law asked was, what must I do to be saved? Is it the same answer, love God and love your neighbor? I don't really think so. Salvation comes from a relationship. It comes from faith in God. Martin Luther said it this way, though. Salvation comes from faith alone, but faith is never alone. Real faith is accompanied by actions. What do you believe? What do you really believe? Look at your schedule, and that will reveal it to you. Um, I I have a practical tool I'd recommend to you. and you have, have any of you, raise your hand if you've done this, ever kept a, a, a budget where you record all your expenses for the month? Okay, have you ever kept a food diary where you record everything you eat for a week? All right, have any of you ever done that with your time where you record hour by hour everything you did all week? Okay, I did that for a few years. And that's the thing I'm going to recommend to you. Um, I was in a men's group once where we did that as a spiritual discipline. And we did it, I did it for a couple years after I left. And... In one way, everything you record gets better. You know, if you're doing a budget, you, you don't want to write down that stupid thing uh, so you just don't spend it, right? Or I've heard Gina say her doctor has her keeping a food diary. I don't want to write that down. Never mind. No thanks. You know, I, don't want to, I don't want to put that on my list. And so there might be ways where that would happen. But what I found to be the most helpful part of the exercise was at the end of the week, I would group them into categories. I spent this much time working. Everybody's got to do that. I spent this much time with my family. I spent this much time watching TV, this much time reading my Bible. I was forced to conclude about 12 years ago that watching Seinfeld reruns was more important to me than watch, than reading the Bible. I would have claimed differently, but the schedule didn't lie. Uh, and so uh, it kind of forces you to take a hard look at what's really important to you, what you really believe. But again, the point isn't just do a better schedule and you're going to inherit eternal life. The point is, well, let me put it this way. Love your neighbor is not step two of the salvation formula. Love God, love your neighbor, you're going to inherit eternal life. Love your neighbor is visible evidence of the relationship you have with God. The teacher of the law didn't need a lesson on who his neighbor was or on how to be nicer to people. He needed a conversion. If you're not loving your neighbor, the answer is not to listen to a message and work hard on being more neighborly, how to be nicer to people. The answer is to meet Jesus. And that relationship we have with Jesus swells, and, and the fruit of that 
is a different attitude towards our neighbor. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for what you've done in my life. I thank you for the situations you've rescued me from, uh, my own foolishness that you've rescued me from. Lord, I thank you for uh, the opportunities you've given me uh, uh, to show your love uh, to people that cross my path. And Lord, I ask for every person in this room that you would help us to to know that we know the relationship that we have with you and to seize the opportunities you give us to love those who are hurting. Lord, help us to be a good neighbor to the people who cross our paths. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.